Well, good morning, River of Life, and welcome to our Sunday morning Bible study once again. Uh, if you got your Bible and you'd like to follow along, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 18 through 22. Um, I had a little bit of trouble today um, naming this, and so I just call it a difficult passage um, explained. You know, as most of you know, we take books of the Bible, and we've been doing this for 10 years, um, we take a book of the Bible and we go completely through it. And there's good and bad about that. The good is that you can't skip anything. Um, the bad is that you can't skip anything. And so today kind of epitomizes that, is there's a, a difficult passage that we need to, to cover. It's got a great message um, but it is going to be a little bit difficult to uh, interpret. So let's first go ahead and read it. It says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at, and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, as I alluded to at the beginning, the passage today that we're looking at is is not an, an easy one. In fact, many commentators will point to this as being one of the uh, most difficult passage uh, in the New Testament to interpret. Martin Luther, um, who was a, 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 one of the greatest Bible scholars to ever live, said that this is one of the most obscure passages in the New Testament. He even went on to admit that he wasn't 100% sure of what it really meant. But now, here's an odd thing. The overall point of the passage is crystal clear. The details are a little murky, but the overall point, there's really no doubt about it, and it's very, very clear. Now, to see that, let's, let's first take a look at this passage um, in context, and let's see how it relates to what comes before it as well as what comes after it. So let's go back to the verse just before uh, verse 18, which is, of course, verse 17. Peter says this, For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So Peter has just told us, and we talked about this last week, that sometimes it is God's will that we suffer even though we're not doing anything wrong. In fact, we're doing exactly the right things. Now, if we're really honest, this is not an easy thing to hear, right? It, it's one thing to suffer. You know, as, as kids, we're raised up, and we understand if you do wrong, you get punished. But if you do right, you get rewarded, and things go good for you. Well, this, God is saying to us through the Holy Spirit, inspiring scripture, that life is not like that for the Christian sometimes. Sometimes you do right, and it's still God's will that seems or that things around you seem to go wrong. So that's not an easy thing for us as as human beings to hear. So we need a little bit of help with it. You know, we need a little bit of understanding. We need some encouragement and we need some hope. And so in verse 18 begins with the word for, which is basically a connecting word. It means because 
he says, because Christ also suffered once for sin. So it, that shows us that Peter, in this passage, is still talking about the same thing. He hasn't changed the subject. He's still talking about suffering um, uh, when you do things or when you're doing what is right. Now, let's jump to the verse after this passage, which is 1 Peter 4.1. And it says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now, again, you can see clearly Peter is still talking about the exact same thing, why it is sometimes God's will for us to suffer for doing what is right. So in between these two passages that talks about Christ's suffering is this verses 18 through 22 in our passage today. So we know without a doubt that the main point of today's passage is to help us or uh, arm us or or, or, or help us get ready to suffer for what is doing right. Now, that is absolutely crystal clear. So, for all the puzzling things, or the obscure things, or the hard-to-interpret things in this passage, we can't forget Peter's main point. And his main point is to help us arm ourselves with the faith to suffer for the sake of Christ. So, here's his main point. Since Christ bore witness through his suffering and he was vindicated, we also too can bear witness through suffering and we can trust God to vindicate us. That's, that's the main point of this passage and it is crystal clear. Now, once again today, we're going to talk about suffering. And as I said last week, for a lot of us, it's hard for this to sound relevant because we don't have to suffer for our faith. But I want to remind you to something, of something today. America is, is less than 5% of the world's population. More than 95% of the people in this world live outside of America. Not only that, America has only, if you look at the last 6,000 years, America has only existed for 4% of that time. What I want you to see is we are, here in America, we are just a drop in the bucket uh, of time and people, a much bigger bucket. For most of the world, being a Christian is not safe today. For most of the world down throughout history, being a Christian has not been safe. Think about this. Let's go back to the first three centuries. Jesus has has died. He's risen. He's, he's, he's risen from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. Uh, the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost and the church is born. For the next 300 years, pretty much every Christian that named the name of Christ knew that sooner or later, more than likely, they might have to testify to their faith at the cost of their life. Now, imagine doing evangelism in that context. Imagine going to somebody and sharing the gospel, and you could make no promises at all that their life would get any better. In fact, if they believed you, they knew they would be risking their life. That's how you did evangelism. And let me tell you, the church spread like wildfire. See, that was normal in, in, the, in the days that Peter was writing this letter. It's been normal down throughout history, and it's still normal today in many places around the world. 
Yet we've invented names for places where it's dangerous to be a Christian. We call them closed countries. Now think about that. We have taken our false assumption here in America that safety is normal. And then we use that false assumption to define where the gospel can be preached. We, we say some countries are closed. Let me tell you, Peter and Paul would have found that to be laughable. Here's my point. Today, in this world, in our modern age, in 2020, it is still normal in most places around the world to suffer for being a Christian. Our situation here is the exception, not the rule. But with the state of our country, I think the time is right for a heavy dose of teaching on suffering. We brought this verse up last week. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. It could very well be that fiery trials are just around the corner for the church in America. Matthew 10, 25, Jesus said this, if they called the master of the house Beelzebub, if they call the master of the house, Jesus himself, the devil, how much more will they malign those of his household? You see, from the very beginning of this letter, Peter has been laboring to, for us to begin to live this pilgrim life, to see ourselves as aliens and exiles. And it's not surprising, it's not abnormal in the world when the culture reviles Christianity. That's normal. See, he's just continuing that theme in today's passage. He wants us to be ready to suffer if God should will it. That is why verses 18 and 22 are here. Now, Let's turn to our verses. In these verses, Peter is going to give us five ways, five preparations. He's trying to prepare us to suffer, okay? So again, if you think this is not relevant, I'm going to ask you to change your mindset. I need you to start to begin to believe that, yes, suffering for us could be right around the corner. Take these things to heart. Five ways Peter prepares us to suffer. Number one, he says, remember that Christ suffered. Right off the bat in verse 18, he says this, because Christ also suffered. You see, if you go read the New Testament, the mindset of the Christianity is always this. Our Lord suffered, we will suffer. Look at some of these scriptures. Philippians 3.10, Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Hebrews 13 says this, Jesus also suffered outside the gate, therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Jesus himself said, Mark chapter 8, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So this is Peter's first great encouragement. If you want to prepare yourself to suffer for doing what is right, look to Jesus. Now, how does that help me to suffer, knowing that Jesus suffered? Because that is what happened to the most kind, the most caring, the gentlest, most loving, most trustful, most truthful, holy man that ever walked at this earth. If that happened to him, why not me? Why not you? Number two, the second thing that Peter wants us to see to prepare us for suffering is this. He wants us to know that Christ has triumphed and brought us safe to God. 
Look at verse 18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Think for a moment over the centuries. We're looking at 2,000 years now, over 20 centuries. How many people have, have suffered martyrdom? How many people have been tortured? How many people have been burned at the stake? How many, how many people have, have been persecuted for their faith? Why would they do that? I mean, I mean, think, why would people accept a religion, believe something, if they knew things in the world would probably get worse for them? Why will people accept Christ knowing that they could die for it? Because the greatest human need the greatest human needs are not to live a long life and not to be comfortable. The greatest human needs are to have our sins forgiven, to be reconciled with God, to go to heaven instead of hell. See, that's a bazillion times more important than living 90 years here on this life, which, which is nothing compared to eternity. And you see, that is what the suffering and death of Jesus Christ accomplished Look at what, uh, look at this verse, and I want to kind of walk through. He says, Christ suffered for sins. You see, sins is what separates me from God. That's my biggest need. Sometimes we think Satan is our biggest enemy. Satan's not our biggest enemy. Our biggest enemy is our sins. Isaiah 59, 2 says this, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. It's your sins that have caused his face to be hidden from you so that he does not hear. See, that, that is vastly more terrifying than having to suffer for doing good. And that, that is to suffer for all eternity, the wrath of God because my sins have not been forgiven. That is infinitely worse than suffering for a short while on this earth for doing what is right. But you see, that eternal suffering is what Jesus died to do away with. This is the greatest news in the world. I do not have to die in my sins. Because there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That's why people would believe on Jesus, even if it cost them their lives. It says he suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. You see, this death is substitutionary. He took my place. He took your place. He took the wrath and the penalty that we deserved. His death is the greatest example ever of unjust suffering. And he did it for people like you and me. And he did this, Peter says, once. He doesn't ever have to do it again. His death is all sufficient. No more sacrifices are necessary. The debt is paid in full. All of my guilt has been taken away and been nailed to the cross. And why did he do all this? To bring us to God. You see, all of that reconciles me to God. No longer enemies but actually adopted into his family. Now, how does that help me suffer? Well, how about this? One of the terrible temptations that Satan will use when you are suffering is he'll think you've done something wrong. God is angry with you. God has forsaken you. Peter is telling us here, no, no. He, he died for you to bring you to God, and he will bring you to God. But for a short while here, you may need to suffer. But it's not a sign that God has forsaken you and turned against you. Christ carried our sins. He absorbed the wrath of God. He brought us safe to God. This is our comfort in the midst of suffering. This is the great comfort of martyrs and suffering 
Christians. You see, our worst sin, our worst enemy, which is sin, has been defeated. And Jesus has already made sure we are being kept by his power. He will bring us home to God. The separation has been removed. God is now for us, not against us. Number three. Now, we're going to get into a little bit of uh, tougher. It's going to get a little bit tougher here. But remember, what Peter's trying to get across to us is he wants to prepare us to suffer. And the third thing he says is remember the days of Noah. Look at verses 18 through 20. Talking about Jesus, he says, He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight people, were brought safely through water. Now, as I said earlier, this passage can be a little obscure, be a little controversial, and this is kind of where it begins. There are two interpretations about this. There's actually more than two interpretations, but I'm just going to deal with two of them today. The first one is this. Some people say what this means is that in the interim between his death and resurrection, between Friday and Sunday, or between between um, Good Friday and Easter, Jesus went down to the place of the dead, and he preached to all the people who had died in the days of Noah. For example, Clement of Alexandria, who lived around A.D. 200, taught this view. Now, when he went down to the place of the dead and he proclaimed to the people there, what did he, well, what was his purpose? Well, this group that believes this is divided. Some people say, well, he went down and gave them a second offer of salvation. Some people say, well, he went down to announce judgment to them. Uh, others say he went down there to proclaim his victory. Um, we don't really know, but I don't really think that's what that passage means at all. Um, it's obvious here that he's talking only about Noah's contemporaries. And my, if that's the point, why would he just go to them? What about the people between Noah and Abraham? What about the people between Abraham and, and, and Christ? I just don't think that's what it, what it means. I tend to go with the second interpretation. And that interpretation says this. That what this passage is talking about is the pre-incarnate Christ preached through Noah to Noah's disobedient contemporaries. For example, Augustine taught this in A.D. 400. In other words, in the actual days of Noah, not between Good Friday and Easter, not between uh, his death and resurrection, but in the actual days of Noah, Jesus in the Spirit was preaching to those people through Noah himself. Now, can we justify that with other scripture? Absolutely. In fact, we talked about this in the first uh, in one of our first studies in 1 Peter. Listen to this. Peter said this, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. And here you go, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So Peter tells us the Spirit of Christ was in the Old Testament prophets prophesying about the coming salvation, the coming grace that was to be was to be theirs. I think this is saying the exact same thing. In the same way, 
the spirit of Jesus was in Noah preaching to the disobedient people of his day. Those people are now in prison. They're in a place of tormenting, awaiting the final judgment. Kind of like uh, you remember the, the parable of, of, of Lazarus and the rich man. And the rich man uh, went to that into there was, went to that place of torment. And uh, there was a great abyss. Um, that's where what he, where he's talking about. They're there now because they rejected Noah's preaching. Now, here's the thing. Regardless of which interpretation you believe or which is correct, again, it's a very obscure passage of Scripture, don't forget Peter's main point. He's trying to prepare you to suffer. So once again, here's the question. Well, how can that help me suffer? Well, let me give you three things. Number one, it assures me of the greatness of Christ. You see, Jesus is not bound by space and time. He was there preaching in the days of Noah, and he's still speaking today. Number two, it shows us that it is better to obey him and suffer for a little while than to disobey him and be cast into an eternal prison. You see, those people in Noah's day, they thought it was foolish to heed the call of God like Noah did. So they stayed comfortable. They they planned to live a long, comfortable life until the rain started. And you see, it was too late. Now they're in an eternal prison. I think that's what Peter wants us to see. It's better to suffer a short while with the people of God for doing good than it is to disobey and suffer for eternity. The third thing I think that he wants us to see here is that it's not a disadvantage to be a small rejected minority. Think about in the days of Noah, eight people. Eight people. Can you imagine how overwhelming it must have felt to be such a small minority when the whole world is going another way? But you see, Peter's point is this. If you're a minority with God, you will still, you're going to be saved and one day you'll be vindicated. The tables will be, will be turned. So when suffering comes, don't throw away your hope. Don't throw away your destiny. Don't throw away your faith. Don't throw away your confidence because there is a reward for you just around the corner. The fourth thing that Peter wants to tell us to prepare us for suffering is he wants us to know the meaning of baptism. Let's read verse 21. It says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 18 tells us that Christ died for sins and brought us to God. In other words, Christ saves us. But who is us? Who, who exactly it did, uh, is Christ's death saving? Well, verse 21 answers that, those who are baptized. Look at it again. Bapti baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now, here's the thing. It's almost like when Peter wrote this, he immediately understood, I need to qualify this. Because if I don't, people are going to misunderstand. So he says this, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And here's the qualification, not as a removal of dirt from the body, not as an outside thing, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen, this is pretty much a, a definition of baptism. Baptism is an outward expression of a spiritual inward appeal to God for cleansing. 
Here's another way to look at it. This may help you. In Romans 10, 13, Paul says this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, let me ask you, does the calling with your mouth, is that what saves you? Is someone on a, on a boat that's going under and they, they call out to God, is, is that going to necessarily save them? See, the fact is, it does save, but only if it's an expression and an appeal of true faith. Just calling out to God with your mouth when there's no faith is, is, is meaningless. So it's not the call necessarily that saves. It's the call that saves when it's an expression of true faith. Baptism is the same way. See, baptism, if you're just dunking somebody and there's no faith, it's just they're just washing the outside. But when baptism is accompanied with true faith, it's, it's an appeal to the Lord. That's when it saves. Baptism is a, is a way of saying to God with our whole body, I trust you, God, to take me into Christ the same way that Noah was taking, taken into the ark, to make Jesus a substitute for my sins, to bring me through these waters of death and judgment into new and everlasting life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Here's the question again. So how does that help me suffer? Listen, when we are baptized in faith, we are buried with Christ. We have, are raised to new life. We have passed from death to life. Listen, judgment is past. Judgment is over. When we suffer, we cannot be suffering due to the condemnation of God. See, Jesus has already experienced that for us. He took the curse for us. He took the wrath. He took the condemnation. All of our sins are paid for. So when we go through suffering, it can't be for judgment. It can't be for condemnation. See, baptism, our baptism stands as a constant reminder that a worse suffering has been averted. Our present suffering is not the wrath of God. That's been taken care of. Our present suffering can be the loving discipline of a father. Uh, it can be a preparation for glory. But it is not for judgment. Number five. Finally, Peter says this. Look to Christ at God's right hand, ruling over all. Verse 22 says this, talking about Jesus. He's gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. River of Life, I want you to take this final thought with you in preparation for your suffering. All satanic powers, including Satan himself, are subject to Jesus Christ. There's not a demon out there that can harass you, that can oppress you, that can deceive you or accuse you or do any of those things as they please. In 1 Peter chapter 5, and we'll get to this in a few weeks, he says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Let me tell you, when he says firm in your faith, he's, this is what he's talking about. Understanding and believing that all authorities, all angels, all powers are subject to Jesus. That's how I resist the devil. I, you, Devil, you are subject to Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean he has to necessarily always back off because again he may be doing something that the Lord's allowing as he did with with Job 
But you understand Jesus is at God's right hand and Satan is under him. He can do nothing without his permission. He is a lion, but he is a lion on a chain. He cannot touch us unless God allows him. And, and he can only touch us to the degree that his touch is turned to my good and for God's glory. So with all these things in mind, believers, stand firm. If you're called to suffer for doing good, no, it's not for condemnation. It's not that some somehow uh, Satan has figured out a way to get you apart from the will of God. No, no, there are times when God will allow us to suffer, even though we're good, godly, righteous people. And in that suffering, stand firm. Father, we pray, as we always do, for your will in our life. Lord, none of us, I think, would want to suffer. Nobody uh, uh, just goes, gets up in the morning and says, I want to suffer today. But God, we do want your will. And if your will is for us to suffer, if, if your will is for us to endure persecution and other things, then God, then I trust that your will is right. I trust that your will is good. That's a hard thing to say, Lord. But God, and, and I couldn't even say it. None of us could without the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us enabling us to, to say those words come out of our mouth. God, your will be done on earth as it is to heaven. Amen.